Well, hey, I wanna shout out real quick uh, those of you joining us at the Nacogdoches location. Um, every once in a while, we have, well, every week we have more than 40 different states in the United States joining us online for Timber Creek Church. We're in six different countries. And uh, today we have someone who's never been to Timber Creek except online there at the Nacogdoches, Nacogdoches location. Sabrina from South Carolina joining us right there live. So glad you joined us this Thanksgiving, Sabrina. Give it up for Sabrina, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family, Sabrina. Today we continue and we are installment number 12. Installment number 12 of this series, this biopic on the life, the leadership, the courage and the controversy of a man after God's own heart who also broke the laws of God, who also sinned terribly in the eyes of God. And yet God was working with him where he was to become who God had called him to be. This story is not all about us seeing David. It's about David pointing us to Jesus. And today, happy Thanksgiving, we're gonna dive into uh, the controversy and the scandal that is appearing in David's life after many, many victories that he has seen time in and time again. Now we come into some dark elements of David's life. We're gonna go to the book of Chronicles and the book of First and Second Chronicles is, is more like history books. It's like the, the Encyclopedia Britannica, if you will, of the nation of Israel. And it, it talks about, it chronicles the kings and the battles and the, the ups and the downs, the, the ins and the outs of, of Israel. And there are several stories in First and Second Samuel that are repeated in First and Second Chronicles because First and Second Samuel are giving us a more of an in-depth, behind the scenes, behind the curtain look a B-roll shot camera angle, commentary on the deal, and Chronicles has given us a drone shot, a, a bird's eye view coverage of everything that's happening in Israel. So we're going to the bird's eye view, the drone shot of First Chronicles chapter 20, and I invite you, if you got our worship guide at one of our locations, or you have Timber Creek Church app, you can take notes right along uh, with us today. And in First Chronicles 20, the author says it like this, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, this is a normal thing, kings and their kingdoms, they would go out to war at the springtime. Joab, who was not the king of Israel, he was actually the second-hand man. He was the general of the Israelites. If, 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 uh, if David is Wyatt Earp, Joab is Doc Holliday, okay? If David's Batman, Joab's not Robin. He's, he's better than that. He's bigger than that, okay? Uh, Joab, instead of David, actually led the Israelite army in successful attacks against the land of the Ammonites. They were in the north part of Israel. Now, in that process, they, uh, Joab laid siege to the city of Rabbah, was attacking it and destroying it. Now, while Joab, while Doc Holliday's taking care of business on the battlefield, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, after the battle is over and after kind of the, the arrows have been shot, the catapults throwing the, the fiery boulders, after the battering ram uh, pushed down the big gate of the city of Rabbah, it was then that King David went ahead and went to Rabbah. And he is like this victorious, more bureaucratic political moment, not a military moment. He removes the crown from now the surrendered king, removes the crown from the king's head, and it was placed on David's own head. 
Here's what's interesting about the crown. The crown was made of gold and set with gems, and he found that it weighed 75 pounds. Can you imagine riding the horseback from there? <laughs> this is great. 75 pounds. Here's, here's what the Bible's showing us here. This is not an insignificant battle. This is not an insignificant kingdom. This is not an insignificant victory. This is not an insignificant king to have a crown that weighs 75 pounds. Now, David took a vast amount of plunder from the city, and he also made slaves of the people of, of Rabbah. Do not try to put David in a suit and tie with a Bible, a King James underneath his arm. He is a mercenary guerrilla monarch king, tribal chieftain king, living in the Bronze Age. And then David and all the army returned to Jerusalem. Now, this seems like a victorious day. This is just another day in the life of a larger-than-life hero, King David. He is a poet, warrior, king. He has beaten bears and lions and giants and the brothers of giants. He has defeated the enemies from the north, the south, the east, and the west. He has uh, conquered another crown. He has taken another gem for his uh, art collection. He has put another notch on his belt. He is now 50 years old. David is no longer the shepherd teenage boy anointed to be king. He is no longer the teenage giant killer. Goliath is way in the rear view. And for now, about the last 18 to 20 years, he has been the king of Israel. And even though this story reads as an awesome victory, taking the crown and, and plundering the city, as he goes back into Jerusalem, the confetti cannons, the belly dancers, That was finger symbols, by the way, if you didn't know what that was. You're welcome, America. Uh, your pastor has ADD, okay? Get over it, all right? So, so he, he comes back into Jerusalem, and it feels like just the dude can't lose. But really, when you look behind the scenes, when you watch the VH1 documentary, when you see what's really happening, when you listen to the commentary, you know that David is actually in one of the darkest moments of his life. He has committed hot blood murder and cold blood murder. Crimes of passion and crimes of protection. He has committed adultery. He has committed sin. He has committed murder. And it's not until you go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 that you read the insides of what's happening behind the scenes of this great victory, this heavy, heavy crown that adorns the head of a king that's not just wearing a heavy crown, but wearing a heavy burden in his heart. Today, we're going to unpack this, this deep, dark, seedy moment in David's life. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. The beautiful thing about the Bible is it's not all daisies and buttercups. It's also real life, real issues. Because some of you, even though you said happy Thanksgiving, it was anything but happy. Right? Even though we say, praise God, there's still some issues that we got to pull out into the light and, and deal with. And today I want to talk to you about the, 
the power of temptation and observing sin from a distance? And, and how do we move forward when maybe we have blatantly or blindly sinned against God? Blatantly or blindly sinned against God. So we're going to start with part one of this story, and it's observing the pool. You and I have the blessing of hindsight. We get to look back into this story, and we get to learn. You, do you know that you don't have to pay your dumb tax? You Let somebody else pay your dumb tax. All of us got dumb tax. We got we to gotta pay our dumb tax every once in a while. You don't have to pay the dumb tax. Let someone else pay that for you. Learn from their mistakes. Say, oh, that's what happens that's what you lose when you do that. That's, what, that's the consequences of that action. I'm all learned instead of like, whoo, that was hot. You ought not touch it. Like, what, that's hot? Ah! Learn from the other bugs that fly into the purple light. But it just looks so attractive on the back porch. Run away from the light, Harry. It's going to get you. And we observe the pull of temptation in David's life here. And I just want to give you just just a few quick thoughts. Write them down. Number one, I'm not above temptation. That's for you and that's for me. It doesn't matter how uh, how much schooling you've got, how much education, how many sermons you've preached, how straight and narrow you are, how many prayers your grandma prayed. Nobody's above temptation. Um, You can be a brand new Christ follower or a senior saint. And nobody reaches a point where it's just like, I just am not tempted in those things anymore. If you're saying that, like, be careful, because temptation could be around the corner. To think that I'm not above it, what happens is you let your guard down. So you always got to be guarding your heart. In fact, the book of Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything from it flows. For everything in life flows from your heart. Guard your heart, guard it, guard it. Number two, temptation usually comes after a victory in my life. You know, the enemy loves to get after you and, 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 and throw the, the bait in front of you and just like reel you in. Usually it's not after a terrible defeat. It's usually after a great victory. It can be after a defeat, but he's more after you because you've let your guard down after a victory. Things are good. You just got saved. Just saved a bunch of money on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And all of a sudden, temptation can come in. The enemy comes in like a flood. David has accomplished many victories. The heaviest crown, a gem for his art collection. And temptation is getting ready to come in like a tsunami. Number three, temptation often hides in questionable activity. When, when we start getting out of the routine of life and we start acting a different way or doing things or hanging out with people that we normally wouldn't hang out with, it's those four words that I'll tell you, I, I, I can tell you that everybody, whether you're at the Lufkin location, the Nacogdoches location, or Dieball and Duncan, these four words make a difference in everybody, young, old, or right in the middle, I had these friends. Where we hang out and who we hang out with can affect our future. Show me your friends, I show you your future. Temptation often hides in questionable activity. If you've ever raised kids, you, you know what I'm talking about. Like when our kids were young, they'd be watching, you know, their best friends, the backyard again. 
They'd be watching the backyard again, and you think that they're all set and they've got a whole world to explore in their backyard and you're going to go to the other room and clean out the dishwasher and they're singing the songs and all of a sudden it's that crazy sound. You ever heard that sound that, that makes a parent go, Whoa. it's the sound of silence. And you're putting up the dishes and you're like, it's a little too quiet in there. You turn, you turn the corner, and now you got to go on a reconnaissance, a reconnaissance mission. You, you're, you're now Black Ops Call of Duty looking for your kids because they're not watching the backyardigans anymore. And you end up finding them there in the toilet room with Barbies in the hot tub now. Or they picked up the paint from daddy's workshop, painted themselves a nice outfit. Or, hey, let's celebrate Thanksgiving. Let's give each other beards, you know. It's like finding your kid behind the couch with the scissors and just like this beautiful reverse mohawk, you know, right, right here. Temptation often hides in questionable activity. Now, when all the other kings were doing what all the other kings were doing, when all the other kings were acting like kings, David takes a right-hand turn. When all the other kings were at the front of the brigades, when all the other kings were given the signals to their generals, David has disengaged. David has taken off the sword. David has pulled off the breastplate. And he just wants to have, can he not, can he not have a break? I've been fighting giants since I was 14. When all the other kings were at war, he's like, I'm gonna hold on this. We're strong enough. We're big enough. We're good enough. Joab, you got this. Now, Joab's fine with that. He's like, <laughs> Tasmania. <laughs> He's ready to go. But while all the other kings were at war, David's hanging out in the palace. And I mean, he's, he's, he's shooting hoops by himself. He's running on the treadmills, got no lifting buddy. He's listening to his, his, his iPhone, listening to the Jerusalem Spotify of all his latest, greatest psalm hits that he's, oh, that was a good one. That was, that was a good one. He's going to sleep early, getting up late. One night he can't, he can't rest. He's tossing and turning. He's probably had too much sleep. Got restless leg syndrome. He's done counting sheep and been counting sheep all his life. Kicks all the covers off of him. He just cannot let rest. And so he gets up, he takes the stairs up to the palace rooftop, up to the, 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 the palace rooftop in the, in the cool of the evening, the moon, the sun has set and the moon is shining bright. It's a full moon evening and he's looking over the vast expanse of the city of lights, the city of David, Jerusalem. And I, and I wonder if he's going back in time to when he was a wee boy, a wee child, and he would be sitting on the fields outside the city gates, watching the sheep at night, starting the fire and seeing the, the luminescence of the sky that were the lanterns of that city that used to be Jebus and now is the capital city of Jerusalem. He's hanging out, he's on the rooftop. I wonder if he's counting his blessings and as he is looking across down to the lower parts of all these little homes. He, the record stops and scratches and he gets locked in because there on one of the rooftops in the moonlight, taking a bath, 
naked because that's, when, that's how you take baths. <laughs> is a beautiful woman. It's Bathsheba. And he immediately quotes Roger Rabbit by saying, Now, he should have been at war. Instead, he's meandering in the evening on his rooftop. He, he could have been satisfied by the many concubines and his own wives. I wonder if maybe he was just tired of his wives. He's come home after a battle. He don't have one. Listen, do not put him in a suit and tie. He's a polygamous guerrilla warlord, tribal chieftain, monarch king. And he's got five wives bouncing babies on, on their hip. <laughs> It'd be nice to help around the palace a little bit. He's like, oh, I got responsibilities up on the palace rooftop. And there, David has another questionable activity moment where he says, hey, who is that? Who is that? Now, here's why this is questionable. It's not because uh, he asks that. It's because his messenger that's with him says, well, isn't that Bathsheba, Uriah's wife? Now, look, if the messenger can recognize Bathsheba in the moonlight, because that's Uriah's wife. David can too. Here's why. Uriah isn't just another guy that enlisted into the Israeli army. He's not just another troop. He is one of David's mighty men. One of David's right-hand men for years. One of his giborim, one of his assassins. Uriah is a bulldog and he is completely loyal to David. So don't tell me that David doesn't rest. Oh, that's who that oh, <laughs> He knew who she was. Oh, that's who it was? And the messenger's like, you know Uriah, right? And then David has another questionable moment. He says, hey, go, would you, uh, I need to ask her something. Would you go get her and, and, and bring her here? I need to talk to her about a situation. The messenger's like, okay. And they leave in the evening to go to Bathsheba's door and bring her to the king. Hey, before we move on in this story, can, can I ask you a question that I need to ask myself? What's my rooftop? What's that area that produces an opportunity for temptation in your life? Um, it, it's, it's not that... Um, you mean to go overboard in that. It's just that you find yourself on the rooftop and you, and you do. And, and it, could be, it could be in uh, gossip. It, it could be in um, fudging numbers in the business. It's a rooftop because if you have to put the right numbers and you gotta pay more taxes, and who wants to pay more taxes? Nobody, nobody's waiting in line. I wanna pay more taxes. You know, you, you, you drink too much. And you say, nah, I'm fine, I'm fine. But, but like, it, it's becoming more and more that you are, you're drinking over the, over the limit, over the line, and, and it's becoming an issue, and it's your rooftop. And you're making excuses. It's, it's the pain medicine. It's this, it's that, it's the other, and, and it's a rooftop for you. That it's temptation. Look, 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 look. No one's above it, and temptation isn't a sin, but it is a rooftop towards sin. It's an opportunity for you to engage in sin. And I, and I just wonder if we need to step back from the edge of the rooftop a little bit and examine, as a pastor, it, I have my own rooftops. 
Just because I preach doesn't make me void of desire of sin, void of temptation. We all have the capacity to get on the rooftop and make major mistakes by leaning into those things. So Bathsheba's got the, the towel drying off her hair and there's a knock at the front door. She grabs a robe and she wraps her towel and wraps her hair in the towel and she looks through the peephole and she's frightened for a moment because when two armored men are at your door and your husband is in the military, that can only mean one thing. So she opens the door a little bit and the, the latch is still, the chain is still latched. She says, yes. And they say, Bathsheba, can we talk to you for a moment? She unlatches it and she prepares for the worst. The king would like to see you. Now, for a moment, she's relieved because Uriah is not dead, but now it's a whole different element that she needs to lean into. And it's here we're going to begin to observe. It's here we're going to observe the power of sin, how sin begins to operate. The king would like to see you, and so Bathsheba gets dressed, grabs her stuff, and heads out. Now, let's understand power dynamics uh, in the hashtag me too culture that we live in, power dynamics can create situations uh, for men and women in, in workplaces, men and women in cultural exchanges, uh, that the power dynamic is so strong um, that it causes uh, terrible, terrible situations. Um, the power dynamic is in Israel, like women have no authority whatsoever. But I also want you to know that Throughout the Bible, whenever there is a, a chosen moment where like someone would be taken advantage of, the Bible is very clear in those moments. In fact, next week, uh, <laughs> Merry Christmas, we're going to talk about another moment like this. Uh, you're welcome, America. You're welcome, Timber Creek. Uh, but we're going to talk about somewhere where it's very clear the power dynamic and someone is violated. We'll talk about that in dysfunction in the family home uh, of, David's, of David's sons. But in this, there's no mention of, uh, of a rape. There's no mention of control. But you've got to know that when you're just the wife of a military man and the king calls for you, even if it would be consensual in your heart, there's a ton of power dynamics here at play. But the Bible doesn't lean into that. It actually leans into more of us believing that if David could see Bathsheba, Bathsheba could probably see David. And the way their story goes for the rest of history, it looks as if there's actually mutual relationship, not just power dynamics at work here. So Bathsheba gets on the back of a saddle and is taken into the palace courtyard. It's taken through a side door and through the washroom and through the, through the maid servant's kitchen and up a back staircase to the third story to a butler's area and then through a hallway lit by candles. And there's a knock on a large door inside another door and the maid servant then opens the door to the bedchamber. And David says, Okay. Yeah, sorry. 
David became Bruno. <laughs> yeah. Do not clap at that. No, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Oh, golly. They're the expanse of the moonlit bedchambers of the king of Israel. And I don't know if Bathsheba's thinking um, just a talk or one kiss and I'll go. I, I don't know if it's, um, I can't believe this moment is finally here. But what we do know is um, David approached Bathsheba and they gathered together. The lust is spent, the night goes on, and after they say goodbye, Bathsheba is taken back down the, the, the corridor, down to the, the more the fire escape and through the maidservant's kitchen and washroom, and she goes home. David lays down, and we think that that's just it. We think that that's the end of the story. But it's the beginning of a, of a pull of sin. Now, I want you to, I want you to understand the, the terminology of what sin means, okay? Sin is not the act that they're committing, although that's part of sin. Would you write it down? Sin is blatantly or blindly rejecting God's authority over my life. It's blatantly or blindly rejecting God's authority. See, many times we can sin and we blatantly know what we're doing is against God's word. But oh, we wanna be our own authority. This happens in my heart. This happens in your heart. I wanna have the final word. I wanna have the last say. I want to be God in my life. I want to choose what's right and what's wrong. I want, I want to have the final authority. And so I blatantly, and then there are times where you don't even realize that you have blindly been rejecting the authority of God. This is what happens when you bow a knee to Jesus and then all of a sudden some of the things you've been hanging around doing and some of the things you've been thinking, you start feeling this inner work of the Holy Spirit in your making you new and you're supposed to be living in freedom now, but like you, you, you're, you're, you're called to be free, but you, but you still keep doing some things that you know, you go, oh, I don't want to do that, but you actually are free, but then you're not acting free. It's, it's kind of blindly being revealed now. Oh, this is not the way to live. God died. God has a son die for me to bring me freedom. And so we, we, we observe the power of sin and so let me show you some, some of the sin stuff that goes on in David's life and in our life. Number one, spiritual jargon and religious routines are not the solution to your sin issue. When you blatantly or blindly reject the authority of God in your life, spiritual routine and spiritual jargon, religious jargon, okay? How you doing? I'm blessed and highly favored. And I mean, you are far from God. <laughs> you, you can have spiritual jargon. We used to do this thing uh, it was a, a community outreach we used to do in Lufkin. It was at a nightclub in town. And on Saturday, we would buy a ton of Chick-fil-A sandwiches and we'd go late at night, almost midnight, one o'clock to one of the local nightclubs. And, and inside it was, <laughs> or I don't know which club it was. <laughs> and, and we would wait outside with um, the church van with Chick-fil-A sandwiches and people would come out that needed a ride home and we'd give them free Ubers basically. 
we'd give them free Uber rides with the church van. And we'd give them a sandwich, and if the Lord came up, we just, we just befriended people right there. And it, was, it, never, it, never, it never failed that every time we did something like this, every, every time somebody would come out of the club and they'd go, oh, what's up, Timber Creek, that's my church. Like, you know, I knew you'd be here, you know, see you tomorrow. That's why we have Timber Creek Coffee Co. Everybody, I'm just gonna, you get your hangover taken care of at Timber Creek Church. That's okay, come as you are, you're gonna be okay. It's okay not to be okay, it's just not okay to stay that way. We got anybody, everybody up in here, okay? Now, <laughs> yeah. Spiritual jargon and religious routines. I'll see you Sunday, and, and, but blatantly rejecting the authority of God and, and, and coming to a place where, um, we're acting in a way that would be against God's compass for your life in anything. We do spiritual jargon. Uh, it's not gossiping if I'm telling the truth. Or God understands they love me in a way that my spouse just doesn't love me. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, it's, I know it's considered stealing, but my employer doesn't pay me the same that they pay them. And until they make it right, I'm going to make it right. And spiritual jargon and religious routines are not the solution. Church ought to be a habit, but it doesn't fix sin. But there's hope. There's hope. Number two, uh, sin only strengthens in the dark. Bathsheba goes home that night, and about eight weeks later, okay, eight weeks later, um, David gets a bring notification on his messenger of Facebook. And he looks it up and he goes, <laughs> because Bathsheba says, call a sister. So he goes, you know, he doesn't want to do it on the operator line because the operator's going to be listening in on the, on the red phone there in his, in his bed chamber. So he goes to his burner phone in his, in his drawer, you know, flip phone. What's up, Bath? <laughs> she says, I'll tell you what's up, I'm pregnant. And he goes, what? Yes, he's like, who? You! Are you sure? I am 100, Are, how can you be sure? I just left the Walgreens and another EPT. <laughs> David's flipping out, he doesn't know what to do because now this little uh, escapade has major consequences because he's breaking the laws of God, okay? But can I tell you that in the middle of that story, there's also spiritual jargon and a religious routine. Before he sleeps with her, he, he, he makes sure, he, I don't know how this comes up over coffee or something right before they, they, they make out, but he says, she, the Bible says she was cleansed from her uncleanliness, meaning she was seven days from her last day of her period. And there was a purpose behind that because if you engaged in intercourse in between that time, it was considered sin because God was putting boundaries on how to live and how to stay safe and clean in that environment. And so David is about ready to commit adultery, but he's asking, are you clean? Because I want to make sure I'm like, you know, honoring God here. Can you hear the spiritual jargon and the religious routine? As long as I kind of cross the T and dot the I here, I can live however I want here. And that's not the solution to his sin. And so now she's pregnant and 
her husband has been gone for months in battle. So if it gets out that he's been sleeping with a married woman, number one, it's against God. Number two, Uriah is one of his mighty men. Like he's not, you know, Barney Fife. He's a killer. So what does David do? Sin only strengthens in the dark. (laughs) So so, so David comes up with this plan and he sends a tweet out to Joab. Doc Holliday says, bring Uriah back in. Uriah comes into the palace, galloping in full gallop, hops off the horses. It's still in stride, comes up to the throne room. And David says, Uriah, he's like my king. And he says, you are the winner of the lottery. Like I was going to choose one or two guys to come in, have dinner with me. We're going to take some pictures, going to give you a couple days off, going to enjoy. Listen, here is a gift bag for you and your lovely bride. What's her name again? Bath, what? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I hope she's doing okay. Here's some bath salts and some oils and some flowers and some chocolates. I want you just to go home and just, just hang out with Bathsheba for a while. And here's what Uriah says. You want to talk about nails on a chalkboard. Uriah says, King, 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 King. I can't do that. All of my men are out there risking life and limb. I, I can't go and just enjoy the comforts of my own home. And so Uriah turns and says, thank you for the gift basket. And he sets it down and he goes and he, he sits outside the, the gates of the palace. David is like, what am I going to do? <laughs> I got to get this guy to get home. So he calls him back in and says, hey, the, the party's not over. We're going to have dinner tonight. Brings him in for dinner and he is pouring the best of the king's wine. And he gets Uriah slobbering drunk. It's in the Bible. You ought to read it. Gets him slobbering drunk. They're they're, they're drinking. And and David's like throwing it back here, you know, throwing it back here. He's like, come on, come on, Uriah. And Uriah is, he's like, go home. And he's, he's walking with Uriah to the city, to the, to the palace gates. He's like, Uriah, go home and be with Bathsheba. And, And David's faking it. And Uriah's like, you're my best friend. I love you, man. And David's like, I love you too, go. And Uriah's waving at him goodbye. And he's, David orders a, you know, a horse, a designated horse driver and, and, and gets him all set up. And David goes back to his chambers and he lays down and he thinks he's covered it. But then all of a sudden he starts hearing Uriah singing from the, the palace gates, some kind of Israeli pub song. King David is the greatest, la-dee-da-dee-da. And he won't go home. He won't break a vow to his other men. What a good man Uriah was. And what a terrible situation. Uriah had no idea he was in. Sin only strengthens in the dark. The next day, David sends another tweet out to Joab, says, bring Uriah back, put him and his infantry in the front lines of battle. And a couple of days later, when they surge against Rabbah, that they do conquer and they do kill, or they, they do they take that city. That's the same city that David will come in and take that 75 pound crown. Uriah and his men are put up front. Now these guys were assassins. They weren't meant to be in the front. They, they were meant to be sneaking under the, the in, in, through the sewer system to come in and, and do the, the SEAL Team 6 stuff. And they were killed in battle, him and many of his friends. 
how many people had to die that day, how many widows, how many women became widows because sin only strengthens in the dark. Word gets back to David that the enemy has been defeated, but that Uriah the Hittite has died. There's another knock at the door of Bathsheba. She opens the eye, the eye, the, 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 the peak hole, and two military men again. Now she knows. Now she knows. She mourns for a while in her own house, and David mourns for a while, long enough for it not to be weird. And then a few months later, a couple months later, Bathsheba is taken into the royal palace and she's given a room and they, they wed there in the palace and Bathsheba becomes David's wife. And everybody all of a sudden forgets how to count because about six months later, David has a baby. Bathsheba gives birth to a child. Number three. I can't hide sin from the eyes of God. Now, when I wrote this, it was on Tuesday of, of this last week. Um, in order to get our team to fill in the blanks to put in the worship guide that you have or there online. Uh, as I went back through it today, I realized I, I think I wrote this wrong. I, I can't hide sin from the eyes of God. Um, I want to write it a different way, but, but, but let me just say, many people, you have a distorted view of God. You have a view that God is going to be mad at you, and so you want to hide things as though you can hide anything from him anyway. You try to play hide and seek from the creator of the universe. You can't hide things from God, but the reason why you have a distorted view is you're looking at God as some kind of malevolent dictator who can't wait to slap you in, a face, in the face with a belt who's waiting for you to mess up so he can get you and get you good. And the reason why you haven't walked into a church in a long time is because you're afraid the walls are gonna cave in because of all the bad stuff you do. And that's why this church is even here. So you can find a safe place where you can find and follow Jesus. And he is anything but malevolent. He is, he is, he is not quick to anger. He is actually slow to anger. It's your, you're the one that's quick to anger. I'm the one that's quick to anger. His kindness is what leads us to repentance. And so I, I would rewrite this. In fact, just write it down a little different. I don't have to hide sin from the eyes of God. Look, I know that you might feel like there are some things you have to hide from some people. Because you don't know how they respond. You don't know what they do. You don't know what kind of consequences and what a, what a lonely place to be. You don't have to hide anything from God. He'll receive you warts and all, junk and all, sin and all. And here's why. God loves you so much, he's unwilling to let you bury that thing that has the capacity to destroy you. And that thing had the capacity to destroy David. Instead of us being no, him being known as a man after God's heart, he could have been known as the murderer, adulterous king. But God didn't let that thing stay buried. Friends, don't let it stay buried. Talk to someone. Talk to someone. Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. You confess your sins to Jesus so that you're forgiven. You confess your sins to somebody, someone. Make sure you pick the right someone so that you can find healing 
because that sin only strengthens in the dark. So sure enough, the prophet, Nathan, comes into the palace throne room one day and he's heard from God the whole situation. God's told him what's up. And David is going through his regular king stuff. He's got political things going. He's signing some treaties over here. He's got some military things going and he's looking at the new spears that they just had crafted by the, the silversmith. And, and, and he's over here kind of giving lines to the local harpist who's, who's saying, what do you think about this? He's like, oh, we'll call it Psalm 94. It's gonna be awesome. And over here, the court, the court juggler's just like, three Israelis walking to a bar. And, and, and like all this is going on in David's throne room. And Nathan walks in. And I don't know if David even expects it because it's been a few months. David says, come on in, Nate. How are you, my man? What's news? What's good? And Nathan says, King, I have a story. Can I share it with you? He says, oh, I love a good story. Quiet down over there, harp. Hang on a second, legislatures. Tell me the story. Nathan goes on to tell him the story that went like this. It was a rich man and a poor man. They live right across the street from each other. And can I tell you that that happens all the time in the Middle East? Maybe not so much in America, maybe not so much where you live, um, but uh, the most expensive house ever built is in Mumbai, India, I've seen it. And it, 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 over a billion dollars. And in its, in eye view underneath it are shacks with blue tarps over them where people live every single day. Most expensive house and absolute third world poverty at the front entrance. Rich man, poor man. Rich man has everything. He's got all the loot. He's got all the lambs. He's got all the ladies. He's got the Lamborghinis, all the L's. He's got them. He is successful CEO of a Fortune 100 company in Israel. And then you got the poor man. Blue tarp on his house. He's got nothing. He barely can make soup with a dirty sock for salt. He's got one prized possession. It's a little ewe lamb, a tiny little lamb. Don't know whether the lamb found it in a ditch or whether it was his last lamb or, or what, but this was this poor man's prized possession. He would feed the lamb little scraps before he'd feed himself. He let that little lamb lay next to him and when he would go to sleep at night, he would let that little lamb drink from his little cup. He loved that little lamb. And one day the rich man, Nathan says to the king as the king is leaning into this story and everybody's watching. One day the rich man, he had all his college fraternity buddies over. And they were shooting skeet in the backyard and they were having fun and they were, they were playing poker and, and they just, they just, they, they didn't have enough. They wanted more. And the rich man says, here, let, I'm going to put the cherry on top. And he has one of his servants go to the poor man, bust through his house, take his little lamb, pushes this little poor man down in the dirt, takes this little lamb, takes him into the kitchen, puts him on the table there in front of all his rich fraternity brothers, slaughters the lamb, slaughters the lamb, cooks the lamb up and they have appetizers. Why? Because they could, because they could. The poor man lost everything and the rich man just went on 
living. And in this moment, David is livid. Busts off his throne and says, who is this dude? Tell me who he is. He grabs his spear. I'll, I'll slit his throat myself. Who is this man that he would do this to a poor little man? Who is this rich man? And Nathan says, you're the man. You're the rich man, David. And the harp falls out of the lap of the harpist. And the juggler like drops all three tennis balls. And a maidservant in the back says, oh, snap. You're the man. You had everything. But you could, it just didn't satisfy you, did it? You had everything. God gave it to you. And you couldn't be satisfied. And you took Uriah's little lamb. And you took his lamb and then you took him. And his blood is on your hands, David. Nathan goes on furthermore to say, calamity is going to hit your house, and boy, will it. There are consequences to sin. There can be forgiveness, and there is. But there will be consequences. You're the man, David. And in this moment, when you're the most powerful man in the room, and you get a finger pointed in your face, how would you respond to that? You may be defensive. You may take that same spear and put it through Nathan's throat. Maybe you deny the whole thing. So that wasn't me. I don't know what you're talking about. Get a bunch of news cameras together, big old, big old teleconference. You can go on national news and you say, I want you to listen to me clearly. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Deja vu right there. Uh, no. Here's how David responds. He says, Nathan, I sinned against the Lord. You're right. What have I done? What have I done? The reason why David's known after a, as a man after God's heart, write it down. Real character is not revealed in a moment of weakness because you have them and I have them. You don't have to be identified by your sin. You're actually identified by the savior of your sin. You can be a son and daughter of the king. Real character isn't revealed in a moment of weakness, a moment of sin. Real character is revealed in how we respond beyond that moment. So you sinned, so you messed up. Now Jesus has something fresh for you. He has a way of taking plan C and making it plan A again. Do not grovel in that moment. Listen, God, you might hold a grudge against yourself. God doesn't hold a grudge. He doesn't hold a grudge against you. Okay? You, you, you sin. Now it's time to move forward. And how you respond beyond that moment is how you see that real character revealed. And so as we finish up today, moving forward from sin, what, what, what does that look like? David shows us how to respond. Quickly, the first thing we do is we, it requires taking full responsibility. 
You can't shoulda, coulda, woulda. You can't point the blame. You can't say, I know, but had you known my situation, you just didn't, you don't realize what kind of pressure I've been under. You just don't know my life. You just don't know what I've been through. I mean, if you could just see, and God's like, I can see. But you gotta take full responsibility. And that's what David does. He doesn't, he doesn't tuck it away and say, okay, Nathan, you're right, you're right, you're right. He goes back to that harpist and he says, hey, write this down. And out of this moment of sin, we get Psalm 51. And the title of this Psalm, for the director of music, it's a Psalm of David, and he doubles down by making it very clear. This is when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. It wasn't like, this is when David was going through a rough patch in his life. This is when David kind of messed up on a couple of things that we won't get into detail on. He said, make it public. You are gonna remember me that I messed up big, but I also have a really big God. And he writes these words, verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, not according to your unfaithful belt. Unfailing belt. According to your great compassion, not your great condemnation. Would you blot out my transgressions? Because David says in verse two, I know my transgressions. I know it. I know it. I know it. I know it. And my sin is always before me. Listen to me. If you've asked Jesus to forgive you, that sin doesn't have to be before you, but we have that tendency to hang on to it. That's called shame. You don't need to wear shame. For you to feel guilty like David felt, for you to feel convicted, that's important. But for you to wear it and wear it and wear it and wear it and wear it, that's called shame. My sin is always before me. He realizes that. And he's now gonna give it to the Lord. So full responsibility he takes. Number two, it requires surrender and satisfaction with my God. Sin will satisfy you, but only for a second, only for a season, only for a moment. It's unbelievably temporary, the satisfaction, the high, the moment of, of spentness that you have after a season of sinning. It might help you for a moment, but it will, it'll suck the life out of you. But surrender and satisfaction with God, and that's what David says in Psalm 51, verse seven, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Nothing like being cleansed. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. You wanna move forward? It requires number three, a steadfast reliance on the power of the cross. This is 1,000 years before Jesus in that same city will be beaten within an inch of his life, having a cross beam put on his back, having to carry it outside those same city gates and up a hill that could be seen from that same palace atrium up onto the hill called the skull, called Golgotha, called Calvary, and he will die. And this is a reliance on the power of the cross. David doesn't even know the cross, but he's actually prophesying over the cross because David writes these words, create in me a clean heart, oh God. Can I say something to you, everybody? You don't create in you a clean heart. You can't keep your heart clean. You don't, you, you, you don't have what it takes to keep your heart clean. It is God that cleanses your heart. He's the one that creates in you a clean heart. And that was through the cross. The power of the cross is that your heart is cleansed, that you don't have to keep worrying about trying to, trying to keep things clean because you're not gonna be able to do it perfectly. 
David goes on to say, please don't cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. That's the power of the cross. Because God won't take his presence or his Holy Spirit from you because he did that to his own son, Jesus, on the cross. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth as he's pinned to the tree, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you, why have you turned away from me? Why can't I feel you? Why have you let go of my hand? Why aren't you close? It's the only time he talks to God and calls him God, not Father. Because a father won't leave you like that. So Jesus understood, so you don't have to feel that. David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Grant me a right spirit to sustain me. And do you know that it was the cross that brought joy to Jesus? What? A terrible circumstance, a painful, excruciating death? Yeah, because that's how we do. We fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Because the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And you know what that joy is? You. The whole world that he loved. That whoever would believe in him doesn't have to perish, doesn't have to wallow in that sin, doesn't have to stay separated, doesn't have to stay rejecting the final authority of your life. The joy set before him was you. So he went through what you should have gone through. finish with a story. Do you know Mary Ellis? No reason why you would. No reason why you know Mary Ellis. Mary Ellis was um, born in the early 1900s, and at the age of 10, she had her first little flight in an airplane, and she was mesmerized. At 11, she started flying lessons. At 17, she received her pilot's license. And at 21, in the middle of uh, World War II, she was, uh, the, the, the war was broken out. Nazi Germany was attacking Great Britain and there was a telegram that went out and it was inviting anybody with a pilot's license to join the military because they needed pilots. At first, it was just men. Then they were willing to, if you can fly, we need you. And she broke the glass ceiling. Her and several other women joined the military by their own choice. And they were responsible to be a part of the ATA, the Air Transport Auxiliary of Great Britain. And their job, their mission assignment was there were these airplanes being made on the manufacturing line in Great Britain And once they would get off the manufacturing line, they were called Spitfires. These Spitfire fire planes, the the women, including Mary Ellis, she would hop in the plane and she would fly it from from the factory line to the front lines. She would avoid enemy fire to get the Spitfires to the front lines so that the fighter pilots could go up. Every time they'd come, they started calling them Atta girls, ATA girls, Atta girls, because they were, they were providing the tools necessary to fight the evil. This is a picture of the Atta girls, and this is Mary Ellis in her mid-20s. Mary Ellis flew over 1,000 
planes to the front lines. She lived to be 101. She died in 2018. In 2016, when she turned 99, she was invited to an award ceremony. And this is her at 99 in front of one of the original Spitfires. As a matter of fact, you can see right here these swastikas representing the, the Nazi planes that were shot down by this particular Spitfire. And they took this picture of Mary Ellis in front of the, the airplane and they were giving her a award of bravery. And uh, the news reporter was asking her some questions and she gave this quote about flying the Spitfire. Here's, here's what she said. She said, that Spitfire, she was a lady in the air, but a witch on the ground. Now I put a little asterisk there because it's a different word that she said, but we're in church. She is a lady in the air, but a witch on the ground. Why? Because the Spitfire, the way it was designed, it was incredibly clunky down the runway. But once it lifted off and it engaged the purpose of which it was built, it was spectacular. It was beautiful. She's a witch on the ground, but she was a lady in the air. If you want to move forward after sin, number four, it requires re-engaging God's design for my life. Listen to me, everybody. As I land the plane proverbially today, David was a witch on the ground. He was designed for battle. He was designed to be out there leading the charge, leading the troops, destined as a wee child for greatness, anointed as a teenager to be the king. And he got disengaged. And in his disengagement, it led to a complacency that built pride, that, that, that hurt him deeply, that cost him and his family and Bathsheba and that child dearly. Had he just stayed engaged with his design, some of you have gotten too comfortable. You are supposed to be a lady in the air. And you have gotten disengaged. And the things of God that used to stir your heart don't. And the intimacy that you used to have with Jesus you were designed to fly, but you've, you've gotten distracted. The rooftops of your life, maybe blatantly or maybe blindly, you're designed for greater things. Re-engage. We've all said it. We've all said it. If I could take it back. But you and I can't take it back. Every regret, every situation, every sin, every temptation that moved beyond temptation, you can't take it back. If I could, oh, things would be different. Oh, if I could just not say that. If I could have just said what I wish I would have said. If I could have just forgiven. If I could have just said I'm sorry. If I could have just made things right. If I could have just been a better husband. Maybe, oh, if I could have just been a better spouse. Oh, if I just could have been a better, I just, oh, if I could take it back, I would. You can't take it back but you can take it to Jesus. 
And though your sin be like scarlet, he can wash you white as snow. Would you close your eyes at all locations, bow your heads. This is business with God, not business with me. This is business with God. And if there is a temptation that's pulling you in the wrong direction, or there is a sin that you need to confess to the Lord, something that you are rejecting God's authority in your life, and you need to say, God, I need to, I need to respond here today. You're not responding to a future life of absolute perfection, but you need to deal with it here right now, whatever it is. If that's you, maybe you would just quickly raise a hand and grab the hand of Jesus. It's not, it's not a hand up, oh, I'm, I'm, it's, it's Jesus, take my hand because I need you today. You would just put a hand up right in the air. I need to repent today. I need to start fresh today. I need, I need Jesus to wash me clean with hyssop today. I'm not where I wanna be today. You can put your hands down at all of our locations. First and foremost, if it's for the very first time, you would simply say, Jesus, I admit I make a terrible king for myself. Would you be king over my life? Be my savior, be my Lord. Jesus, you died on the cross for me. You rose again to show me that you have power for living and I, I need that in my life. Thank you for giving me a fresh start today. I wanna find you and follow you. Maybe for a fresh time you say, Jesus, there are some things that I've been, I've been climbing the rooftop. I've been getting too close. Jesus, there's some things I need to say. I'm sorry, I have sinned against you. And I say, please forgive me, Jesus. And thank you. Thank you because of your unfailing love and because of your unfailing compassion. Thank you for forgiving me today. I give the worst part of who I am to the best part of who you are. And that is everything. You are amazing. And I give everything to you. We ask it in Jesus' name, the strong son of God. And everybody everywhere said amen.